0: Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the Midwest pontificate about politics, global affairs, and everything under the sun. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. So, Craig, I want to start this week, uh, before we move into the political realm, uh, talk a little bit about a cultural issue, a kind of a big issue that's been in the news, uh, the NFL, and this uh, recent lawsuit, uh, racial bias lawsuit about hiring in the NFL. And it's interesting that it's taken this long for a lawsuit like this to reach the press coverage and magnitude that it has, because it feels like this has been a decades-long issue within mm-hmm. the organization, and it's never really been confronted.
1: I think the first thing we have to address is the conspiracy theory about the Chiefs game on Sunday, Brandon. <laughs> Do you believe that? So the, the conspiracy uh, theory— You had to bring that up. That, it's still a
0: sore point with me. I'm not over oh, that my loss. My wife has
1: not watched Sports Center since Sunday because she just doesn't want to hear, hear about the game. Yeah. But, The conspiracy goes as this. The Chiefs are laying the wood to Cincinnati in the first half, okay? The call comes in that because the Super Bowl is at SoFi Stadium, which is in Los Angeles, and Matthew Stafford was traded from a terrible team, Detroit, to a premier team in L.A., they want the Rams to play at home for the Super Bowl, and they want a team that the Rams can beat, so the conspiracy, the conspiracy theory goes that almost a halftime, the Chiefs are up twenty-eight to three. Somebody makes the call that they want the Bengals to win this game, so they can be beaten by the Rams in the Super Bowl at home in a, what is turning into the NFL's premier stadium in the second biggest city in the United States. Now. That was a bitterly disappointing <laughs> loss on Sunday, but oh, I yes. don't think I'm ready to go into that uh, in, into that conspiracy mode quite yet.
0: Well, I, I'm a little bit of the other view because I'm willing to indulge it if it allows <laughs> me to you know, excuse the poor plays that we saw on Sunday because there was just one bad play after the next. And I just like was screaming at my TV. I'm like, what's going on? Why so are you you're, doing this? So
1: you're channeling Trump here, and you're saying, get the players back. Let's run this back. Let's play that second half again. That was not fair. Let, let's make sure that the best team actually won.
0: Uh, I mean, I i would love to do it over again. Yeah, because I just, I, it, it was such a dismal performance, and and so many bad things happened. I mean, we should have had, you know, that uh, field goal you know, at the won. end of the we first half. I mean, we just instead of running it, which we ended up again, we should have won that. There's no excuse. As I mean, a Chiefs fan. There's no,
1: there's no dominant team this year. This was, this was a year we could have won and kind of won pretty easily. Yeah. That's what burns that we just, we had it. And then just for some reason, Cincinnati made some adjustment and we just, we just couldn't match it.
0: Yeah. And we, and it seems like we didn't really scramble to try until it was too too late. I mean, why? Like I just, and I mean, before the interception, the last interception that happened that then won a game for Cincinnati, we had several close calls. Remember there was that one almost interception. From Mahomes, yeah. that was stopped. It's just like, where's the wake up yeah. call? I, I'm just, I'm so frustrated because we were this close to another Super Bowl. <laughs> you, I, I would not I like, I can't like, we
1: shouldn't have. You, I wish this was on camera because Brandon, you, you suddenly turned like Italian. You, you've got both hands. Working, <sighs> I mean, I'm very animated. And you're yes. crossing
0: your arms and you can't contain it. It's oh my I, god. I, I, because we shouldn't have gone to this point. I mean, if we're going to have this bad of a performance like we shouldn't have even got you know come this far yeah. i mean let's you know just and not
1: this is why sports kills people this was after we played the greatest game maybe ever played yes and then we come out and for almost a full half we look unbeatable and then we just absolutely fall apart.
0: And it's a false sense of security because we look unbeatable. Like, at least I would feel better if we started off the game bad and it continued and we never got our groove. Like, yeah. that's one thing. But to have, you know, to start out as good as we did and to have this massive lead and then to, to blow it and to never recover, I, that, I just – I can't wrap my mind around yeah. that. It's so, so bad.
1: Football is is by far America's most popular sport. Yeah. And it's been – It's been decades now that there has been a fight over black coaches, head coaches, and offensive and defensive coordinators. Those are the top three positions on on a football team, basically, for coaches that black coaches have always been underrepresented, underrepresented in the NFL. And the coach for the Miami Dolphins is a gentleman named Brian Flores. He was the defensive coordinator, I believe, for the Patriots. Then he got hired as a a head coach at Miami. He got fired at season's end after having back-to-back winning seasons uh, for the first time in like 20 years or something like that. The Dolphins have recently, since Marino left, they've always sucked. He entered into a, a job with them where they had gutted the roster. He had no expectations his first year. He managed to pull off a winning record this year they were 1 and 7 he went on a big roll finished 9 and 8 and and was able to pull out a winning record and for his efforts he got he got fired this also kind of capped off where multiple coaches were let go and african american coaches are down to one coach mike tomlin of the pittsburgh steelers in the nfl and there's always been this perception that there should be more black coaches, more black candidates, and more right. black folks participating at those upper level levels of coaching in the NFL than are out there. Then Brian Flores, I believe two days ago, Monday, Tuesday-ish of this week, he filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL, the Denver Broncos, the Miami Dolphins, and the um, New York Giants. In his lawsuit... He basically is claiming that the NFL has something called the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule is named for the owner or the owner's family of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And basically this is you have to interview at least two non-white candidates for every, I believe it's every head coaching job.
0: Right. I actually was unaware of this rule until mm-hmm. the lawsuit. It wasn't even something I knew And about. I think
1: they amended that rule last year or two years ago to say, now it has to be two non-white candidates outside of your organization. Okay. If you're looking for a head coach, you can't just interview two black guys within your organization and say, there, we did it and move on. Yeah, you like actually checking the box. Right. And the intent was to actually have the clubs take this seriously and take these candidates seriously. What set Brian Flores off? One of the things that set him off was Bill Belichick, the legendary uh, coach of the Patriots, who he used to work for, sent him a text that said, congratulations on getting the Giants job, Brian. And Flores texts back, hey, do you know something that I don't? Because I haven't heard this. And Belichick texts back, oh shit, sorry about that. They hired Brian Gable, the offensive coordinator out of Buffalo, not you. My bad. So three days before he flew to New York to interview with the New York Giants, they had already picked their new coach. So basically the Rooney rule in this situation meant nothing. He was there kind of, like you said, as a checkbox because they'd already had made their hiring decision. Right. Basically, they hired the, the a guy from Buffalo to be their general manager. He was he hired his friend, offensive coordinator Brian Gable, and that's how he got the job. So part of his suit is that the Rooney rule really doesn't have any effect because all of these interviews are just shams. His his action against the Denver Broncos is based on that he had an interview with him three or four years ago before he got the Miami job. According to Brian Flores, everybody showed up an hour and a half late. Uh, Elway, who was the general manager at the time, and another guy, he thought they were disheveled, looked like they had been out drinking all night, and basically just blew off the entire interview with him there. The Broncos have absolutely disputed that. Yeah. And his problem with the Dolphins is, and this gets this gets into issues with the league, According to Brian Flores, when he was hired, the owner of the Dolphins told him he'd pay him $100,000 extra per loss. He wanted him to tank because they wanted a quarterback at the top of the draft. So as soon as Brian Flores gets there, his owner tells him, I will financially incentivize you to work less and to lose so we can get a better quarterback prospect. Wow. Also... There was a quarterback that he that the owner of the Dolphins wanted to bring to Miami. He is under contract with another team. It is against league rules. It's tampering to talk and recruit players that are under contract with another organization. The owner of the Dolphins told Flores, hey, I'm going to meet with this quarterback under contract. I want you to come with me. Flores told him, no, I'm not going to do that. That's tampering. He basically tricks Flores into meeting him for lunch at his yacht where the quarterback's there. And Flores, as soon as he gets there, realizes what's happening and and leaves. So Flores and the Dolphins have not seen eye to eye from almost, it seems like, from day one. So this is a class action suit that he is claiming that Black coaches are, are the effective class here and that because of the rules of the NFL, because of, the, because, of who, because of who the ownership group is, which is all white, there is inherent racism within the process that is keeping African-American coaches from getting these high-end jobs. And I think anybody can look at the NFL and say, one black head coach, there's got to be a problem there. You you can just look at the results of how many African-Americans are head coaches and see something is amiss. Now we get to the hard part. What actually is the problem? Why are these men not getting these jobs? And what role does their race have to do with them getting these jobs? And I really haven't, I've heard a lot of people say, this is obvious racist, I've heard a lot of people say it's obviously racism that's causing this because all of the owners are white. All of the things that Brian Flores has brought up is just the shitty process of interviewing for a job. Yeah, Brandon, you've had to have interviewed for a job that you knew you weren't going to get or because you knew they had an internal candidate or there was somebody else they, they, were, they were looking at. That's just part of, of getting a job. Right. And especially when you're trying to get where a job where there's only one of 32 of them. And they're highly competitive. So, this brings up this whole kind of cultural conversation. How do you go about assessing a hiring process that is obviously producing racially skewed results without just calling everybody a racist and actually trying to understand what's happening and what levers do you press on to fix? And by the early parts of this conversation, what's fascinating to me. It's very apparent nobody knows how to deal with this. Yeah. It's very apparent that everyone's just going to say, this is racist. That's the narrative. Nobody's offering any solutions at this point. And it just feels like this is ground we've covered before, and there really is no solution to this, maybe.
0: Well, it's undeniable that there's bias there, but the, the issue is how do you prove it in a legal environment? Yes. That becomes very difficult. And then outside of that, like, yeah, is the NFL going to take any additional action, implement any policies that are, you know, much more uh, tougher than what they have now? I mean, the Rooney rule obviously is a check the box, and and you can easily get around that. But that does confront the systemic culture issue of the NFL. You know, and it's just, you can have all the rules in the world that, you know, you need to be able to interview three or four people outside the organization. And you're constantly going to have owners that oblige um, and do what they have to and still hire who they want to hire.
1: I don't, somebody told me a really long time ago people hire people they know and people they like. And I yeah. think that is a standard rule across. All organizations. Oh, it's pretty
0: common. I know that when I've interviewed for roles in the past, if I know there's an internal uh, candidate, I pretty much write off my uh, opportunity to get that role yeah. right away because it's just it's very unlikely at that point because the bias is usually to always go for the internal candidate because it's someone you know versus someone you don't know.
1: And I guess what, what I'm trying to articulate, and I've been arguing with my wife about this for like three days, is so far, can, can you point to mm-hmm. where... Brian Flores, where the actions of the NFL or the three clubs he's suing were specifically because of his race. Can you point to where this was done specifically because he was black? And this is the part where all of this breaks down. Yeah, this gets down to, like you said, how do you prove this? And it comes down to again, the Rooney Rule is a violation of of the um, of of, in, of policy basically. When we get into tampering and things like you know um, tanking and fixing games. Now you get into some, some legal issues. Yeah. But other than this, just a tearing it into, you did this. No, I didn't. You didn't give me a fair shot at the interview. Yes, I did. Which by the way, everybody involved on the other side of this has already come out and said, Brian Flores is wrong. How, how do you navigate this? How do you come to any meaningful conclusion? Yeah. I, how do you even know what the problem actually
0: is? I, yeah, I don't see how a lawsuit would be successful here because even if their the league's policies were violated, it's their own rule, it's their own policy. There's no legal ramification no, that you might get punished from the league on. Right. But
1: how do you how do you if if Brian Flores said, "Hey, the interview I did with Denver was a complete sham because they didn't show up on time and they didn't pay attention." And Elway and his crew says, we were 10 minutes late, and here's all of our notes that showed we were paying attention. How, where does that go from there? Yeah. How do you move these issues forward? And I think that's what we're – I think you can extrapolate this argument. This fits on the police brutality argument. There's so many things that we've been arguing about over the last couple of years that we don't even have the fundamental data to understand what is the actual problem we're arguing well, about.
0: Yeah, and, and the police brutality issue is a little bit different because there is a mechanism there on the policy side for lawmakers to step in and say, you know, we're going to require this or this, that. With the NFL, I mean, it's a it's a private organization. So yeah. there really isn't a policymaking apparatus that comes into play. There really isn't. A legal apparatus, unless you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the, you know there was, uh, or, or, or be able to—I should say—beyond a reasonable doubt because that's not the criteria—but prove in a court of law that you know racial bias was at the heart of what happened, yeah. and that's how do you prove that? That's how do you prove to, that? You can prove that you know policies weren't uh, adhered to, which is different than proving racial bias, and it's a lesser standard, and there really isn't a legal mechanism for uh, punitive action yeah. or damages. And so it really all comes back to the NFL being willing to police itself and decide to impose you know, quota requirements or something stricter on their own um, teams. I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
1: Ryan Clark is on ESPN. He's a former uh, player for Pittsburgh. Uh, he's also uh, my wife's self-proclaimed boyfriend. She loves <laughs> Ryan Clark. He said it this way, which I thought was really good. The process isn't racist, but there's racism in the process. Right. And I thought that applied to so many other issues we've been talking about. It's not about. inherently racist. Correct.
0: It's just – it's systemically, the way that it's built and designed, it lends itself to overlooking – uh, people of color that would otherwise should be considered on an equal playing field and yeah for consideration
1: the process itself specifically states you cannot act racist during this process, so the process itself clearly outlines that somebody 's racial makeup should not be part of the decision, but then you dump the human beings in there that run the process, yeah. and that 's what he was saying that. We can talk about how we have legislated all of this out of organizations, out of governmental institutions. It's the people in there that where that racism comes into the process. So to use the conservative argument, all racial laws, have, that racism has been outlawed it's a common argument from pundits on the right point to the law. That's racist point to the law that says it's okay to treat people differently based on their racial makeup. Those have all been struck down and don't exist. So now we're back to the same part. We always end up with, how do you deal with people then in those organizations who I'm not even going to say act racist, but they act with bias towards who they are, who they know and people they're comfortable
0: with it's biases that are you know not you know explicit you know but implicit biases that are, just exist that you know are part systemic and a good example is uh, for example uh, home buying you know there 's a lot of biases that play themselves out systemically mm-hmm. towards African Americans who are purchasing a house as far as um, home loans and and being able to secure financing that are not explicit. The law forbids that, but it 's just by nature of the way the system is set up uh, they are denied loans more frequently and are not given the same terms as those who are white. And that exists in many industries and in many different organizations and and again it's not intentional it's not there, but it's just it's remnants of the organizational setup and the uh, processes that have been in place for decades and decades and the fact of the matter is you have people of color who are disadvantaged because they're not part of those processes, they're underrepresented yeah. in those industries, just like in the NFL there's a clear divide between players and, yeah. and, and leadership and leadership, you know, they're underrepresented If you and it's the circular problem, right? Because if you had more African Americans um, who were coaches and who were um, on coaching staff Half, then you would have less of that because that um, implicit bias would be, um, w- yeah. would be neutered. It would be neutralized in many cases, and you would start to weed that out.
1: What, what, I would, what I'd love to see happen, because I think this is what keeps us in this constant loop, is number one, we don't know the size and shape of this problem and what i like about the nfl example is we can now now we have this contained group that we can work with there's only 32 teams there's 32 owners there's right. only 32 general managers uh there's only probably 30 candidates a year that interview for head coaching jobs we have a small enough contained sample size that somebody could actually do the work to try to understand why this is happening somebody could it, you could every year for the last 10 years, look at what jobs were open, who interviewed for them, what was their racial makeup, who got selected, who didn't, how did the black candidates that didn't get selected compare by resume to yeah, the white. Yeah, it's for a research we can project, do this. An analysis. Yeah. Like you just said, it's a huge research project. Interview all 32 owners. But we might actually be able to use this to draw some conclusions and get to the bottom of a few things. Right. Do you think that's what people really want to do? I don't.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think many don't. I mean, and I think probably the league probably sees it as uh, a necessary headache and would, you know, prefer to ignore it or try to, you know, have people forget about it.
1: If I'm the league and I just made the Washington Redskins change their name, yeah. and I just fired John Gruden for a treasure trove of emails where he was acting a fool, I'm going to dive into this. I, I think you're right. I, I don't. But the point I'm trying to make is that. We could do things to help understand these problems better, to understand why they come about, who causes them, and what are the circumstances to which magnifies them. I don't think we want to do that. We'd rather, this is something where we need the argument more than we need the solution. The second thing is, I keep thinking about Thomas Sowell, who is an African-American economist and philosopher. He he has a phrase, I'm going to butcher this, but it's basically that In the United States, racial equality will take the form of tyranny. And I think something like you just said, what five teams are we telling them you're hiring a black coach? What nine owners are we taking their teams away to sell to non-white owners to balance it out? Who's going to give up their stuff to give other people stuff? Right. Nobody. We're not doing that. That's not going to happen. So where do we go from here? And I think it it, this the Flores thing reminded me of, number one, how much I don't understand of the African-American experience in, in business. Because when I look at what Brian Flores went through, I've been through all of that. You've been through all of that. Most everybody has. Everybody's interviewed for a job that they didn't get when they knew the fix was in. I guess for me, it's and this is part of maybe my privilege. I always knew another one was going to come along, and I knew I was going to get an advantage. Well, I, I think that's a difference.
0: So you always knew that there was, you know, going to be an opportunity to advance elsewhere. I knew where, the
1: odds were in my favor. Right. I just had to find the spot to play my odds. That's where all.
0: where I think that Brian and others see that there is like it's a complete ceiling. Like there is no other opportunity that's going to come along because this is the culture that's pervasive across the organization. And so, you know, I am going to be stuck here at this level no matter what, because there there is no other opportunity. And
1: the Supreme Court, I think, is about to take a big, giant bite out of affirmative action.
0: Yeah, I, and that's uh, based on um, what prognosticators are saying. That's very likely. And yeah. I'm just based on the makeup of the court, too, I think, with where it stands.
1: So I think we can—maybe we can agree. I'll say this is my thoughts, and tell me if you agree or not— it feels like, in the NFL example, the Rooney rule and affirmative action – I won't go f- – let's stick with the NFL. The Rooney rule has obviously failed. It was yeah. designed to get more black head coaches hired. It has not done it. Right. Brandon, what, what's the next version of that rule? Is there a – can you legislate this type of behavior? Is it any way possible to make a rule that would compel owners of NFL teams – these are billionaires, mostly in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and up – to be more receptive to hiring somebody that doesn't look like them or have the background they do? Can we legislate that?
0: I I I mean, I don't think you can. I mean, the backlash would be immense, and I think it would lead to some unintended consequences. I mean, eventually you want to get to a point where you see progress that's embraced by – the masses as a whole, and when you take policy to that level where you're forcing that type of change to a way where it's impacting others, you inevitably face backlash and then resistance to the cause itself, and that, that's what you would, um, would, would happen. It's a completely different policy issue, but it makes me think of um, uh, Zimbabwe, which has a colonial past. And so after the European uh, colonial governments fell there and Zimbabwe had their independence, the African-American-led uh, g- government uh, repatriated land yeah. that had been owned by whites there. They forcibly took that land and, and gave it to, uh, to black farmers— But that didn't solve the issue. What what happened was it caused this uh, exodus of the the white minority population who left the country. Um, You have farming issues now that are systemic because the people that were given the land, um, because it was done in such an abrupt, haphazard way, they don't have the experience they need to be able to farm it effectively. And there's a lot of uh, uh, agricultural, economical issues that are still factoring in to this day. So... uh, the point is that there's a lot of unintended consequences when you act too quickly and you use policy to force outcomes yeah. um, without thinking them through.
1: So the Denver Broncos are for sale. I think they, i think I read somewhere they will fetch a price of somewhere around 5 to $6 billion. Yeah. It might be a little bit high, but it's in the billions. Now I'm going to argue from the owner's side. Um, that's my money. You didn't pay for any of this club. I own it. I own it with money that I earned. It's a business. I run my business my way. What right do you, the league, the government, or anybody have to tell me who I should hire and fire in my business that, by the way, I laid out the majority of that, of that money to buy? That's my, that's my money on, on the line. I worked my whole life to have enough money to buy this team. What right do you have to dictate to me what my hiring practices should be? And I think this is something we've always struggled with. I I asked asked somebody the other day who was arguing how terrible this was. I'm like, just give me the number. How many teams, how, how many black coaches should we have? Set the number. Let's just say it's eight for easy math. Okay. Point to the eight teams. We go pull their coach and force them to hire somebody else. Is that what we're doing? And that seems everybody that talks about this, it feels like that's what people are advocating for. We should just dictate it. There should just be a law. Somebody should just go tell the NFL. It doesn't work that way. No. You, have to re- you have to at least recognize the rights and the position of the people. And I get it. They're 32 old white guys. They're, they're the punching bag. I understand that. But they do have a position. They do have rights. And they do have some – they have a case here. How do you not just completely shit all over their rights – by forcing an issue that you feel you're morally right to force. Right. I, I, just, I, I just don't know how we get past that.
0: Well, in long term, I think that you would um, lose uh, effective owners who would then flee the organization saying, yeah. hey, I'm not going to deal with this. And, and and so, again, you want change, but you want that change to be embraced uh, culturally by the organization. And forcing it via the law or through public policy aims on a private organization like this, you're not going to arrive there. I mean, it's a very different scenario, like I said, than, like, uh, you know, police or, you know, government, civil institutions where, you know, the government can and should step in because those are not private organizations and they have an impact on our livelihoods and and how we're treated under the law. But to do that to a private organization, it's a very different area and a very different line to cross.
1: It's just... This is one of those, what, 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 what I find interesting about this is again, we could find out more about this and it would be, it would be difficult, but it is imminently doable yeah. to kick off a project to understand what's happening. I have a feeling we're just going to argue because the narrative of evil white ownership is going to come into the mix and we're never going to put our, our guns down on that and try to actually understand what's, what's happening.
0: Right, I don't expect a legal resolution out of this that's going to to change the culture. I'll be watching to see if the NFL decides to do anything on their own, but I'm not confident in well, that they're either. They're going
1: to sit on their hands and just hope this whole thing blows over. Right, and
0: that's what I think. I think they see this, you know, as a, a distraction, and the you know people, you know, attention spans are short. Like get people's attention focused elsewhere. People will forget about it. So yeah, I'm not not confident about it but obviously we'll watch it as it yeah. proceeds.
1: And yes, forcing somebody to sell their team to give it or to to give the opportunity to buy it to buy to a racial minority, that's a form of tyranny.
0: Yeah, I mean that goes it against, is. you know, yeah. our free market principles. If you're as a advocating that,
1: I think you're you're taking the wrong tack.
0: Right. Brandon,
1: do you watch the view?
0: I no, I do not watch it regularly. I will go Shop. back and watch clips when there has been drama that happens or yeah. they've had a high profile guest that has said something uh just because I like to be entertained especially <laughs> after a long day, but but I do not watch it on a regular basis. And and it's known for drama. Their hosts have been known for gosh, I don't know, decades for saying outrageous yeah. things at times, having to apologize for different things. And this latest example is no... uh, Did you hear what Whoopi said? Change, I did, yeah. (laughs) Which, it's interesting to me, like, how someone like her would say something like that or just, like, be completely oblivious to the history of the Holocaust. I mean, it's right there. I mean, yeah. the Nazis were all about, you know, this idea of racial purity and fighting for the perfect race. I mean, the yeah. Aryan, you know, aesthetic, the ide- the quote-unquote ideal that they fought for was at the heart of the extermination camps, the Holocaust yeah. itself. So the claim it wasn't about race, but it also shows, I think, it was a very narrow view of race that Whoopi was taking, you know, in terms of skin color only. You know, black and white, is it the only way you break down race?
1: Well, I I think it's Dave Chappelle, maybe, or somebody else who has, some black comedian has the joke that white people are white people. I don't have time to subdivide you up into little (laughs) categories. If you're white, you're white. And I think that's what, that's how Whoopi Goldberg I think sees race. Yeah, I mean the Holocaust. There's anything racial about it because everybody looked the same. And I think she pointed out the the phenomenon of black people viewing race specifically through skin color because that's how they um, experience race in the United States.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's emblematic of you know their experience, um, particularly American blacks, has been so. Um, specific to you know th- how they were brought into this country, and then every level since then of, of b- being trying to fight for equality, that yeah I think with her, I think it was just looking at it from that prism and from from nothing else, even though again you get outside the United States, race issues are much broader and much yeah. more complex i mean it 's not just about skin color, <laughs> and various peoples divide um themselves and others um according to race by a host of other factors outside of just actual skin yeah. color uh, I mean you know you have you have language you have you know tribe that comes into it. Um, you know, and, and again, it's just, but you don't even have to go outside of our own country. I mean, look at, for example, the, the Native Americans. I mean, that's an example, you know, racially where there was a, uh, a, a, uh, barrier put in place, you know, by European whites who came to this country, um, that is very specific, um, you know, similar to how blacks were treated, but yeah, again, it's, just, it's a very narrow way of looking at it, only through the black experience, and not yeah. realizing that you know there, there's so many other examples out there.
1: I think growing up, I'm, I'm 20ish. Oh, I'm 15 years older than you. I got to stop giving my myself. I got to stop putting more years on me. Growing up, certainly, race was seen as color. Where we, I grew up in a small town in rural Illinois, there was white and there was not white. That, that was that's it. how race was explained to me. There are white people, and then there are non white people. But
0: see, growing up in Illinois, and this was probably later, so was it as much of an impact. But I mean there's stories. Did you grow up in Illinois too? No. Okay. <laughs> but there's stories about um, going back to, you know, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, about the Italian experience. Because yeah. even though Italians are, you know, white they are also Mediterranean, and yes. they were seen as lesser than by yeah. um, Anglo-Saxon whites yeah. in America. So again, it's an example of where there was a racial divide created by you know you know within what's considered the the white race. And there's plenty of examples like that. I mean, not only Italians, but but others as well. Oh, so
1: should Whoopi be kicked off of the view or or air quote canceled for her remarks?
0: I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of. <laughs> like canceling people that way I mean I think that you know send a message you know com- see communicate that you know that that was inaccurate you know that there's a you know an explanation of that that that's that's not factually correct um, you know, an apology made and and move on. Um, I think what's more interesting is um, Megan McCain was taking pot shots at, at Whoopi um, through well, a Daily she Mail took article.
1: So much shit on that show.
0: Yeah, so she apparently still has a lot of boiling resentment, which I, is kind of I obvious. can understand
1: that. If I'm Megan McCain, my my questions are around: okay, who gets to apologize and who gets kicked off the island? Yeah, because people have been kicked off the island who said. Equal or less things than Whoopi Goldberg did. Why does she get to apologize, get suspended, and then come back? Well,
0: I, yeah, although I would, uh, McCa- uh, Megan McCain was also lumping in all other shows in daytime. Uh, talk shows as well, like uh, Sharon Osborne when yeah. she got kicked off she for that, which was a off. different show. I don't know. I'd have to, I don't know the history of the view and I'm not dialed in on, you know, who they have let go for controversial remarks.
1: Well just just in general. I think that
0: But yeah, I think it's a reasonable argument to make in general. So I I'm I'm not a Megan McCann fan for other reasons. She moves no. me the wrong way personality wise. And yes. I hated how she always played the victim. Um, you know, and and granted she was alone <laughs> Person on the right on that show, but it just like it got so old. That did she, she was ever always, watch
1: that show before she joined it? Did she? Right? Not it's like you know, know when you were joining, you're getting did you paid. Not you are the whipping post, right? It's pretty straightforward.
0: It, so it's like they'll complain about it when you signed up for it. It's like come on, and so I, I have, and they haven't it actually. It's interesting because they. This is a sidebar, but they haven't found a full time replacement for her yet. They Who's looking. taking that
1: job? <laughs> I just don't. I one. I don't get that show. It's it's people screeching, screaming, and saying stupid things. So Whoopi was com- in complete character when she said this. That 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 comment is no stupider than a million other things that have flowed out of her mouth in the. 10 or 15 years that she's been on that show.
0: Well yeah, and I you know, I I like her as a comedian and actor and uh pop culture icon for, for other reasons. But if Sister you go, Act. Sister Act, yeah, great movie. Um, still <laughs> uh, 90s classic for yeah. my childhood. Uh, but yeah, but if you go back, she's had other controversial statements she's made throughout the years. Yeah. Um, Roman Polanski was one of her best <sighs> friends, and she actually made a statement, you know, because for those that don't know, Roman Polanski <laughs> You know, allegedly raped a thirteen year old and drugged her, and Whoopi made a statement on the show saying, "Well, it wasn't rape, rape or something." Yeah, it was. And it's like, no, it was. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to be fired for something, you would think that would be something that you would be fired for. But
1: for for the younger crew out there, just Googler Roman Polanski. Yeah, one, his wife was Sharon Tate, who Who was was brutally murdered
0: by the the Manson family. Yeah. yeah,
1: and then he brutalized a 13-year-old girl and fled to France, I believe, yeah, where he's lived his entire since then, yeah. life. If Roman Polanski ever set foot back in the United <laughs> States, I don't give a shit if he's 98 and he's here for one minute just to die on American soil, he should spend that last minute in jail for what he's
0: done. Right. He's never, yeah, faced punishment for yeah. his crime. Yeah. Okay, so
1: back to Whoopi real quick, Roman Polanski. There's a new podcast called History Daily, and they just had one last week. Oh, I'll have to check that out. They I'd just had they're they're nice little twenty five minutes, so they're quick. Okay. And they had one last week on the um, Tate labianca murders and Charles Manson. That was really really good.
0: That is such a I mean to this day such a fascinating crime too uh, because it's so gruesome and it was so horrific and i and I think it's emblematic, you know Charles Manson was up for parole every couple of years, and he kept yeah. getting denied because number one, I mean this person just scared the crap out of so many people that he was able to amass these followers to do these horrific things. Uh, and for those that didn't see, um, uh, there was the the film that came out a couple of years ago, "What's Upon a Time in Hollywood." The yeah, the uh, Quentin Tarantino yeah. film that reimagined what would have happened, and you know, and for many people, it was actually kind of cathartic. It's very uh, graphic in terms of the violence. Yeah. Of course, it's a Tarantino it, film. Yeah, but I mean, seeing if you know what would have happened if you know the opposite would have happened, and the cult would have been stopped, and they wouldn't have committed yeah. any of their murders, but. Yeah, it's it's a horrific crime, and I mean, it's something that's been consumed and digested and analyzed over and over and over again, because to this day, it kind of stands apart from other yeah. crimes in America due I, to its brutality. We will get into
1: the graphics of the crime, because it, yeah, it's Yeah, you can look horrible. that up yourself, yeah. All I will <laughs> say is that the home security <clears throat> industry happened overnight after the Tate lobby right? murders. It created a whole industry in the United States around home security that did not exist before. The the idea that you would have to have a security system in your home was ridiculous to most Americans before the Tate LaBianca. Well, nothing
0: mothers. like that happened. I mean, that was yeah. a just wake up moment yeah. for the country. So, a lot of pundits on the right have been patting
1: themselves on the back about how they are supporting <sighs> Whoopi Goldberg. Don't think she should be suspended, and don't think that they that she should be canceled. Is do you believe that there is a difference in view? Really, between right and left on cancelization, saying stupid stuff, that kind of that kind of stuff. Because it's the right is constantly talking about the woke agenda and fighting back against cancel culture. I don't know how much of that they actually mean. I don't know how much of it they
0: understand. Well, uh, yeah, and is I,
1: it even a real issue for them?
0: I mean, I don't think so. I think it's an issue of convenience because I think they can use it to rally supporters. And for the most part, if you look at it. They're all for cancel culture when it's the other side, mm-hmm. not when it's their people. And the right engages in cancel culture of many forms. You know, you talk about Gitter or any of these new platforms that have been set up as alternative um, social media for the right, um, most of them, um, at one point or another, um, have uh, what was the one that was around um, that was deplatformed off of the Amazon oh, Web Services Parler? Parler, Parler actually kicked people off that were not pro-Trump. If they expressed anti-Trump <laughs> views, they got kicked off the platform. This was that's So again, they exercise their own form of cancel culture, and a lot of these far-right sites do that. They don't. It's not a two-way communication street. It, it just isn't. Yeah. So again, it's it's convenient because you know both sides will you know make. Excuses uses for their own, and they'll be more lenient for their own people than they will those on the other side. So I think that's the most frustrating part of cancel culture is there is no consistency applied. It depends on who's calling the shots and whether or not the person's sympathetic to their cause. Yeah.
1: I agree with Ben Shapiro on this. Either everybody goes guns down, or there has to be one standard applied to everybody.
0: To everybody, yeah.
1: And that amount of fairness will never happen. And we don't have it
0: even if you look at, you know, uh the the I don't know how you would refer to it, but when somebody is quote unquote canceled and they're put into this like purgatory or exile for so long before they're able to redeem themselves. It's different for everybody. There's some people that redeem themselves very quickly, and they're back like that. And then there's others that are in this um, imposed exile for years, and they don't get to redeem themselves. So again, it points to that uh, consistent standard you outlined. What is it? And why do some people get to come back much more quickly and atone for their sins, and others do not? I'm
1: looking up how old is Whoopi Goldberg. Oh. (laughs) Because again— Sixties— Sixty six. Okay. So Whoopi isn't canceled. She's retiring. You're sixty six years old. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be on the View.
0: Oh, correct. Nobody retires, the, you know, that young so anymore.
1: I, <laughs> I will. If anybody's listened to this podcast for any length of time, I will admit my bias. I am an ageist. 100% yeah. I am an ageist and I'm in an ageist upper range and I'm in an ageist lower range. I don't believe anybody young and I don't like anybody that <laughs> I consider old. Yeah. That's my, that, that's my bias. And I have bitched incessantly for three years why does everybody why is every important position, it seems like, occupied by an 80-year-old Yeah, these hangers on.
0: I mean, I know um, associates working for some of these big law firms that can't advance because you, sure. you have these guys that are in their like mid to late 80s who are still the partners of the firm and won't retire. And and, and that's for many industries that are similar to that. And we as a culture, it's interesting where people don't retire early anymore. They stay on as long as possible and limits advancement opportunities yeah. for those below. Them them and you know and then of course government is the worst because that has an impact on our everyday lives and when you have people that have dementia or people like you know diane feinstein who's not even all there there's mentally, no way yeah she's like, come on yeah
1: did you see biden the other day where after his i think he gave a press conference uh when was this maybe it was today when it was uh, about syria the action we took there but jill his wife took his arm and led him out of the room.
0: Oh, no, I didn't it that. It literally
1: looked like a nurse leading an elderly patient out of a room. And I'm not taking a swipe at Biden. It's just that he's he's old. Yeah. These things
0: happen when you get old. Uh, speaking of which, do you see when he was had that press conference with Breyer? When he was joking with Breyer because he was head of the Judiciary Committee. When Breyer got <laughs> appointed to the Supreme Court, he's like, Gross. "Look at this! Like, you know, I was, you know, heading up your uh, That's uh, not a positive." You know, back when Clinton appointed you, and now, you know, now I'm president, and you're retiring, and I'm still here. And Uh, I was like, I I wouldn't be joking about that. I think that's emblematic of everything that's wrong with politics right now. But That's so (laughs) gross.
1: Yeah. So, I I mean— all of us have biases, all of us have points where we 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 talk about something that we don't know about and we say something ignorant. Yeah. There has to be a path back for people who do that. And all the cancel stuff is silly, but to your point, I don't know what really being canceled means. I mean, if you if you lose an economic opportunity or a job because of you said something Sometimes that might be the best way for you to learn a lesson about right. not saying that.
0: Well, and, and again, it's it's the in most cases it's the private sector responding, and this isn't yeah. government censoring or canceling you. And I think uh those on the right um are uh clever in terms of sometimes deflating the two and making it sound like you know this is government it's not government it's you know it's the it's society it's you know it's private sector you yeah. may not like it, but you know there's you know there's not it's very different than government taking that action, and you know it's also the flip side of that is there's an accountability. Portion to that as well. So yes, and some things are so egregious, you want people to be held to account for what they say. The question then becomes, you get into the weeds of, you know, to what extent and for how long and what's the appropriate response. Um, We all agree that there should be accountability now. It's very different than if you go back 30 or 40 years, where, you know, you could have serial sexual harassers who could do whatever they wanted on the job and never face any accountability. You want there to be accountability now and so it, the the question is how do we enforce a consistent standard as a society and how far should it go i think a
1: lack the, what what's hurting us right now is the basic lack of accountability yeah. we've just given up holding anybody accountable for anything and we just there is no standard applied to when somebody obviously Makes a mistake. A mistake isn't right. I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're on my side, are you pissed off the right people? Accountability is gone. Yeah. And that's what that fundamental problem stretches across our entire political, economic, social and cultural expanse in the united states at, at this point
0: well and it gives many people an excuse to just discount any type of accountability action because they could say well it's it's biased it's yeah. Yeah, only because they're on the opposite side and they would not do it if yeah. it was their person
1: or i just don't care yeah. yeah brandon did something that we should hold him accountable to but he made the people that i don't like really mad therefore i'm giving him a complete pass right. not only can pass, i'm defending him i'm saying he was right I always tell my kids, especially my daughter, because my daughter is my personality. She has a big mouth. She talks a lot. She's always making jokes. She's always trying to be funny. There's one simple rule, and this is a PSA for everybody: no Jew jokes, no Nazi jokes. If yeah. you're making a joke or you're you're using Jews or Nazis or World War II Holocaust in any of your conversations, trying to prove a point, you're off in the weeds, and you you the the odds of you offending someone are five times that. Of you making your point using Jewish people and Nazis or the Holocaust as your context.
0: Well, and your point doesn't even matter anymore because no. everybody has nope. moved on to. That's being a offended. great
1: one. I wish all politicians would go to politician class and just realize anytime you are saying that you are hurting yourself. Yeah, you are not helping your cause. Speaking of lack of accountability, January sixth, are we are we to the point where it's just commonly accepted that Trump tried a coup? And there were just a few steps that didn't get executed, and that's how close we were to Trump throwing us all into a pretty serious crisis.
0: Well, yeah, I think between the Eastman memo, which outlined exactly Mm -hmm. the intent, uh, the fact that there was an organized plan to uh, coerce states into appointing their own electors. It had a name. The Green Bay Sweep is what they called it. And, and and the fact that you had uh, members of Congress involved in this and disseminating this, uh, so this was a, uh, I think, significantly expanded scope uh, in terms of the the plan and what they attempted to do. So, and as we discussed off mic, it was but for a handful of people that stood up and said no, that this didn't happen. Yeah. But but yeah, it was it was very intentional. I mean, there was no. I think you cannot deny that there was not an effort going on behind the scenes on multiple fronts – to overturn the result. Amanda Carpenter had a really good piece in The Bulwark where she outlined the various fronts to this strategy. Um, There was the legal front, you know, flood the courts with these challenges. Um, And, you know, and they knew those weren't going to go anywhere, but it was a good way to distract. While behind the scenes, they were trying to coerce state lawmakers into appointing their own electors and into buying into this fraud narrative. So yeah, I think it's very scary, and I think why it's even more important that we have the January sixth commission, we have the Justice Department continuing to charge uh, insurrectionists. Um, we had the first charge of insurrection actually, which had not been leveled. Is that yet. Just the Oathkeeper guy? Yeah, the Oathkeeper no. guy, Stuart
1: Rhodes, I think.
0: Right, which no. which is good because you've had this, you know, some on the Trump right that have said, oh, nobody's been charged with insurrection, it wasn't really an insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, so that opens up the floodgates there. So there's a lot happening, I think, that, um, and it, the question is now, how much can the committee get done? You have the Trump administration stonewalling and fighting legally, um, through, uh, all of the subpoenas, uh, in court. So it's really incumbent that the courts move these pretty quickly with an understanding that, the clock is running out yeah. because when the Congress changes over, the it's investigation done. dies.
1: Yeah. It's, it, getting back to accountability, it's clear that the president of the United States attempted to steal an election and stay in power after he lost the election. Yeah. I don't think no anybody doubt. who is capable of looking at evidence would dispute that. Do you have any faith that anything happens to Trump
0: for doing that? I have zero. I, I don't. He skates yeah. on
1: this scot-free.
0: I mean, I have more faith that he will be prosecuted on the financial irregularities or issues, uh, tax issues, than I do over what happened um, with the, the count. I, With the exception being it will be interesting to see what comes out of the prosecutor's office in Georgia with that specific – Yeah. Uh, Uh, coercion and uh, manipulation of the Secretary of State's office with with those counts. There might be something there. But even then, I don't feel like there's going to be anything with the full force of the law that's going to result in jail time. Again, he has a much better chance of being indicted on financial crimes than on trying to steal a a national election, which is what he did.
1: So the President of the United States (laughs) tried to steal an election. It is fairly straightforward fairly well documented evidence is pretty much crystal clear people who are involved in the in this plot are admitting their their um involvement in yeah. it They're, they they'll go on TV and talk about it Trump will talk about it. It is clear as the gigantic nose on my face what Trump did following the election, and I like most Americans, he will walk scot free and there will be Absolutely zero consequences. If there's no accountability there, why do I give a shit about NFL coaches? If the president yeah, of the United point. States can try to steal the election, why am I, why should I even care to hold NFL? Nothing owner? else matters. Doesn't that seem inconsequential to the president of the United States? Yeah. Basically trying to stay in office after he lost?
0: Well, this is what boggles my mind because the president is unapologetic in his efforts to try to steal it. This We're is all documented. It. He yeah. writes about it continually. He still upholds that uh, f- uh, uh, stolen election narrative, the big lie. I mean, he just pinned a, uh, bl- whatever you call it, a blog post a couple days ago, uh, stating that Pence should be investigated for not, <laughs> I saw um, that. you know, for certifying the election. Yeah. So this is somebody who is not hiding his true colors. I mean, there's no denial of what happened, but if we can't find a way to, to charge him with that, I mean, and, and really what it tells me is that, the presidency is that powerful that um, he could easily try this again, attempt to do it, and be successful, and there'd be no—would there be any response if he is? I don't know. I mean, I mean, if
1: he gets elected in 2024, I would just assume he's not leaving. Uh, <clears throat>
0: yeah. Right? I mean, that has to be the assumption,
1: right? He'll stay past or he'll he'll appoint Ivanka or something. I mean, that—if if he gets elected in 2024, the expectation has to be— he tries to make himself president for life.
0: Right. He's not going to give up power voluntarily. And then we're going to be a banana republic yeah. at that point.
1: Brandon, do you believe in like a, a collective American consciousness or a, a collective American, what, what am I going here, like mindset? And can that be altered by people's behavior? I guess what I'm going for is, are we starting to slip and slide and decline in how we see ourselves as Americans, and America in general, that makes it acceptable to stop holding people accountable. That's well, just the way it's done.
0: I mean, most definitely. I mean, I feel like we've been, you know, in this uh, decline. I feel like we did have this national American consciousness, this this national character or unity of, yeah. uh, of uh, purpose that existed through mu- much of the 20th century. Um, probably into the 90s. The 90s is when it probably first started to disintegrate and we started to see it unravel. But now, I think if you look over the past decade. I don't think we have any national American consciousness. It's unraveled to the degree. I mean, if we would have had it, you would have seen it happen during COVID. You would have seen parallels. Right, you would have seen it parallels to how we handled. COVID vaccination with how we handled the polio uh, vaccine where yeah. we all came together as a country and it's your patriotic duty, yeah. go get vaccinated. We don't have that anymore. Um, you know, if, whether it's a na- military conflict, whether it's um, a crisis, a constitutional crisis, there is no national purpose and nothing that unifies us. So we're fragmented as a country completely among many different lines and yeah. fault lines all over the place.
1: So the Chinese, I've heard that the the Chinese, for example, culturally, they don't see a problem with stealing other people's work. Culturally, oh, not at that, all. That's, that's just that's not seen as a negative. It's almost bad that I wouldn't show you my source code for my software, yeah. so you could learn from it and, and basically take it and, and and make make it your own. Culturally, that's just something that they view differently
0: than than we do. In the early 2010s, I had a former high school buddy who was working on a startup in China Uh and uh, very involved there and was trying to make it work, and he was there because of the manufacturing facilities uh, and and then tried to expand globally, but they were trying to get contracts with the Chinese government and with other entities in China, and they quickly found that all roads go through the Chinese communist government. And that it 's a pay to play system oh, yeah. uh, and so you 're not going to get far unless you no. bribe you know local officials all the way on up, and it 's the wild west and then there was still no firm protections in terms of proprietary yeah. protections and patent protections, and so they could easily do all of that and still at some point down the road uh, lose out to a domestic yeah. A competitor who would, could steal their, uh, their um, intellectual property. So ultimately, he and um, left the company because he's like, I can't do business under yeah, these conditions. This isn't possible.
1: I think so. In China, there was a set of circumstances that led to the development of a cultural norm that it was okay to steal other people's intellectual property. Yeah. That really wasn't stealing. It's viewed as forced sharing or, or whatever you want to call it. But something happened that allowed that culture to develop that collective approach to intellectual property. Is all of this lack of accountability and people getting away with things that just seem to be appalling and things that I never thought we would let slide in America, is that, does that run the risk of changing us culturally to when we come out the other side of this, we're not going to be what we used to be?
0: Yeah, I think it's possible, and I think that's what's scary. Is this a temporary blip on the radar? Is it a temporary aberration, or is this, again, a new norm, a new normal uh, that we're not going to be able to shake at any time?
1: We've always had people lie, cheat, steal, try to get uh, the shortcut. That's just part of human nature. Right. But in my time here in the United States, I've never seen us
0: celebrate it. No, it's on a collective level. Yeah. There's always been shame. Collectively. There's always been shame around it. So yes, yes, you have individual actors that engage – um, and that kind of conduct. But they're, they're not celebrated, they're not embraced, they're not upheld. And if that comes public, they're usually ostracized. There is no shame anymore. No. There is no ostr- uh, people being ostracized for that type of conduct. It's just anything-goes conduct where they're rewarded. And part of that... Is our um, 24-hour social media environment yeah. because um, it's all about clicks and plays and views and you know notoriety and that supersedes everything else and so shame has just completely plummeted because it's just it doesn't exist anymore.
1: Shame to me is a is a combination of like fear, guilt, remorse. Yeah, you feel shame when you know you could have taken another action and. Shame to me occurs when you, when you know what you did harmed another person and you did it, maybe not intentionally, but you knew harm was going to come. Typically, right. I think that's when most people feel shame. And shame is probably one of the strongest emotions humans can feel. I understand the need to say we need to not shame people and we need to not use that as, a, as the rod to change people's behavior. The times that I've been ashamed of myself are the times that I've changed the most.
0: Yeah, that's really when you change behavior yeah. permanently. And and it's the only way, particularly for, I think, societal um, – where society agrees, where misconduct is so flagrant and so yeah. uh, significant – it's shame that's going to change behavior and also set an example for others that, hey, if you engage in this behavior, this is what you can expect. And, and, it, it, and it's good to set that example because if people see that others are not feeling guilt or remorse about what they've done, they're doubling down, yeah. and they're refusing to even acknowledge wrongdoing or misconduct, they're going to act in a similar fashion. And that's what we see now. There's no, there's no
1: pressure— Or there's (sighs) no potential to say, I better not Uh, do that because my peer group may really – get on me for that.
0: When was the last time you saw a public figure, whether it be a politician, a celebrity, apologize for um, alleged misconduct where, you know, it was, I mean, the evidence was there. It's so rare now because most of the time they just, they refuse. They double down, refuse to acknowledge it. They play the victim. They try to elicit sympathy. I mean, it's so rare to see somebody apologize at all anymore and take ownership for what they've done.
1: When I, when I was a manager, I would always look for ways to apologize to people that I, that worked for me, even yeah. if I had done nothing wrong, but because it, it just showed them, I will admit when I made a mistake, I am conscious of my own behavior. And when I make a mistake, right. and I hope you I will, will too. recognize it and I will admit it and I will admit it to you so we can talk about it. Yeah. And people have just completely, the power of the apology has been completely gone. Yeah. People don't just think in those terms anymore.
0: No, it doesn't it doesn't exist. Um I mean I I I'm always astounded. I remember going to uh, the pharmacy one time to pick up a prescription um, late fall last year, and um, it wasn't ready. And the pharmacist uh, apologized, apologized to me. I'm completely sorry. Um, yeah. Apparently made a mistake and did not fill this and got distracted. Let me go ahead and do it right now. And that just stood out to me because it's so outside the norm yeah. because nobody does that. i give every level.
1: manager listening here a tip. Take your staff, write their names down, do it once a week or or do it do it you don't have to do it once a week but but can go up to and apologize for something and watch the reaction hey i did that the other day i cut you off in a meeting the other day just want to let you know sorry about that i'll i'll keep that in my mind and i'll try not to do that again that, that's as much as it takes that person that's is it. on your team for life. They yeah. run through a wall for you <clears throat> just by showing a little bit of humility and a little bit of I'll hold myself accountable. Right. And that's to me, all it
0: takes. that's what America's
1: about. Yes. And we've completely just thrown that in the ditch. For what? I don't know. But that's not the way we're going
0: anymore. No. I mean, it's really disheartening and it's something and, and discouraging because it's something I've noticed for a while now and it drives me crazy particularly when i see people again public figures called out for bad behavior or, or just horrible things and, and they refuse they just don't take responsibility and they don't apologize and it's so off-putting but at the same time it's become so systemic now like it's just it's like the the natural uh, reaction that people have and when, when called did out
1: we, and when did we lose humility when did yeah. we lose being humble when did we lose the knowledge that not exercising power is more effective sometimes than exercising power. Right. I just, I don't know. I guess this week, Brandon, I'm feeling exceptionally old and out of touch. <laughs> I don't know why, but this week's been one of those where you just feel like, what What are we doing? Where, where are we going? Where, what's happening in this country?
0: Yeah. I, I, no, I've been wondering that for a while and I keep waiting for something to change <laughs> and I don't know if it's ever going to change. I do keep change. waiting
1: like one day someone's going to pop up. It's going to be like, there it is. That's the direction. That's where we're going. Well, but- there's
0: also, again, it gets back to a lack of leadership, which we've talked about as well. We don't have um, a trustworthy leader who has the no. uh, credibility who can you know, say, hey, this is a right, you know, and, and call that behavior out. Somebody who won't get demagogued as being on one side or the other. And if
1: somebody showed up and he or she tried in good faith to make that argument, we would just make fun of them and not believe them anyway.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, True. Did you watch any curling last night? I, I did not. Um, I know the Olympics have started, and I am I am not uh, up to date yet. So I, I did hear some people online talking about curling. Oh, and... Our
1: mixed doubles team. So once again, my wife is <laughs> – like four years ago, she fell in love with curling. And she stayed up like till 3 in the morning to watch it live when we <laughs> won the gold medal four years ago. Oh, wow, yeah. So we, we watch – all curling. What I'd love to see, why don't we get a team of like retired NFL players and that's our curling team. Yeah. And I don't understand why you just don't take that rock and just whip it down the ice as fast as you can.
0: Right. I mean that's I I've always been fascinated by it. It's a because it's such a uh unique intriguing sport. The little sweeper? Yeah, so how do you decide if you want to go into curling? Like what like how do you make that decision? Like, where do you go? Like, how I do you did, train so for that? Curling
1: is huge in Canada. Okay. And I did watch a documentary. I think on Netflix, there's a documentary on curling. My favorite part of the documentary is when the, the gentleman who used to lead the Canadian team had to say, yeah, we, we didn't win the, the 1992 Nationals because we were too drunk at the event and got disqualified. So <laughs> curling is a sport you can play absolutely hammered as well. It's like uh, bowling. Yeah. You can bowl drunk. You can curl drunk. That seems pretty easy to do. Right. What are the five Winter Olympic events that you'll actually watch?
0: Uh, You know, I like uh, bobsledding. I was always into mostly because as a kid, I remember watching cool runnings in school. And so that really got me interested into bobsledding. Um, I mean, I think the the skiing sports are fun and interesting to watch. Um, So it's, you know, those are, uh, you know, obviously time-based and um, require a lot of good skill. Uh, what others? Um, hockey's good. Hockey's a good Downhill one. Downhill yeah. skiing's good. Yeah.
1: That's about it.
0: There's like five
1: things. Hockey, skiing. Do you watch any of the figure skating?
0: A little bit. So sometimes it depends yeah. on who's competing on the U S side and, and kind of where we stand. So sometimes I'll get into that and watch it. Um, again, I, I'm fascinated by figure skating just because like, I, I cannot ice skate at all. I can't, so, I don't know how a human, I can't skates. imagine the stuff no. that they learn and how long that takes and, and how they do that. Cause it just, it boggles my mind.
1: How do you jump on skates? Yeah. I don't get that
0: either. I don't, I don't understand sports that, I mean, really hurts. Like if you fall, I mean, on the cold ice and I mean, you're, you don't, it's not like you're wearing like knee pads or anything. I mean, you're exposed and it's just, it's so like, Oh, like I, I thinking about it. I just can't, I remember as a kid, Trying to go ice skating once and uh, obviously barely being able to stand and like... You're I'm like, how this. do people do this? I don't... Yeah, I'm not a fan.
1: What would your reaction be to a Blades of Glory, same-sex <laughs> men's... Um, <laughs> I think they should do
0: that. Yeah, they should do that. Because I, I think, we're, like I said, two dudes, they could really throw each other around. They could, yeah. I mean, we're we're ready for that. We've progressed, I think. You could, a double sow cow? Dudes could
1: probably like quadruple sow cow that thing. Yeah. They're stronger, faster. Why not...
0: Oh, I forgot all about that one—the Will Ferrell comedy of the what <laughs> was a, that? The early it's 2000s, really funny. yeah.
1: <laughs> the the one Olympic, the one Para Olympic event I will watch. If you have never watched Para Olympic hockey, these are the toughest human beings on the planet. Okay. So they sit in like a like a sled, and they push themselves, and they have these little sticks, and they just smash into each other. They just just. It is devastating how physical it is. I can't imagine already being paralyzed yeah. and just, just hurling your body onto the ice at people. If you've never watched paraplegic hockey, it is wild, it is entertaining, and you will walk away with a great deal of respect for and the athleticism that those men and women do. I had it's no brutal. idea.
0: I mean, that sounds brutal. I mean, that sounds like so much more exertion as well. Did
1: you ever, when you were a kid in um, PE, they ever had those little square things with
0: wheels you'd sit on oh, and scoot yeah. yourself around? We used to play dodgeball on yeah. those and some other games. So yeah.
1: picture a room of adults with that, and they say, okay, on the count of three, everybody ram each other as fast as you can. Oh, and by the way, you each have these little sticks too. You can go ahead and whack each other with those too if you feel like it. Wow. It's a brutal sport, but it's It's entertaining, and it is. it's amazing that folks... In that physical state, what am I saying? Hell, they're in better shape than I am. It's amazing those people can can do that at the level that they could do it at.
0: Yeah, that is incredible.
1: Are you going to watch any of the Olympics?
0: I'll watch some of it. Yeah. Are you
1: boycotting because the Chinese are bad and communist and do bad things?
0: No, I mean I don't think boycotting viewership is going to have much of a make much of a difference at all. But um, I mean, I do agree with. I mean, obviously, we could spend entire podcasts, multiple podcasts, talking about what we do about China yeah. because it's a problem that is almost insurmountable at this point, but it's also something like we can't just ignore It's No.
1: Yeah. China's like the Southern border. Biden, you may choose to ignore it. It's not going to go away.
0: And, and they have been very clever and, uh and how they've, pursued and expanded their influence in multiple places and industries around the globe uh there was a podcast that i listened to about how they expanded their influence in hollywood yeah. um, to their benefit and then how they've used that also to close out uh the movie studios i mean because they still choose what films they show yeah. domestically and what they don't did show.
1: you see that the china release of fight club had the indig changed
0: I heard about that, That they yeah. don't
1: blow up all of the credit cards and banks and restart the financial system. In In the Chinese version, right when they're ready to hit the, the button, the screen goes black and words roll. The authorities busted in. Everybody was arrested. Nothing changed. Wow.
0: Do you remember the movie Inception? I think it was Inception yeah. when that came out. There's a... Um, is it there... Uh, that takes place. There's also a futuristic city that factors into that. I think that. so. So uh, initially, that... City of the future was going to be I think Paris, France, so it was going to be a European capital, and because that was one of the movies that Hollywood heavily courted China on, and they brought in Chinese consultants and 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 everything because they wanted to be able to screen that in china and and make box office revenue there um China was able to convince them to change the city sure. of the future to Beijing, which yeah. is what happened, and so you know that wasn't initially going to factor into the movie, but that was Chinese uh influence being exerted there.
1: China just – China uses a phrase that my mom and dad uses with me all the time. You take my money, you take my shit. They, they come together. Yeah. If, we're, if you want to create a movie that you want to market into the Chinese marketplace, these are the rules you're going to play by. Right. Do you want to do it? Yes or no? It's really no more debate – than that, and it's shocking how many people say, "Yeah, we'll do that. It's okay. I don't care."
0: Well, and again, I think what should have been an eye opener is um, the you know the tennis player who was just <laughs> disappeared yeah. after making those accusations. She and, made a
1: quick little video, then she's gone again. Right. Nobody really knows where she's at.
0: I mean, she was taken off of social media, like any instance of yeah. her. And it's scary. I mean, you have an all powerful autocratic government that can do that but also those are examples where we need to stand up and say hey like i mean this is more than money at this point like we we can't even implicitly you know allow this yeah. and uh, agree to it i mean it's just it's beyond <sighs> the pale like i
1: said we'll have to take a
0: week and just there's spend so an hour because yeah. there's
1: just so much and we're going to have to deal with this at some point uh, absolutely all right that's our hour. thanks
0: brandon thanks craig
1: Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at middle. We'll see you next week.